Hi everyone, welcome to Financial Planning Conversations. I'm your host Craig Saunders. Today we're saying farewell to 2017 by looking forward to 2018, where we see five trends that will be shaping financial advice. But first, this podcast is proudly sponsored by Plan Plus, which supplies advice tools including Plan Plus Planet, My Plan Plus, and Finometrica. For more information on the Plan Plus and My Plan Plus advice software, go to planplus.com. For more info on the Finometrica risk profiling tools, go to riskprofiling.com. And so, to our five trends for 2018. First, competition. Specifically, how to coexist with elephants in the room like Vanguard who could easily trample over smaller advisory businesses. Second, and related, is automated advice. That's the pure play robos and the hybrid models where the advisors are involved with the technology. Third is regulations and standards, where we are seeing some movement. In the US, there's a drift towards a de facto fiduciary standard in the wake of the Department of Labor debate, while MIFID II is driving things in Europe. Our fourth trend is evolutions in the way we measure and describe financial risk tolerance, and some maybe aren't what you think. And the fifth trend, preparing for the next market correction, because we know that it's on the way, even though we don't know when it will arrive. So let's take a closer look into those trends with Paul Resnick from Plan Plus. Paul, welcome back. Good day, Craig. Paul, before we look into the next year, how would you describe this year, 2017, for the financial services sector? What were the big standouts and events for you? Well, at the beginning of the year, it was the expectation that robos would uh, would have a great influence. By the end of the year, there was the notion that uh, that wasn't going to happen. Um, clearly, we've had a year of regulatory fine-tuning. Um, we expected a little more, very little happened. Um, we, we've found ourselves... Um, in the middle of some arguments around how to assess suitability and clearly suitability and regulation go hand in hand. Um, the, the one for me that, that I've been pondering for the last while is the rise of passive investing in ETFs. And um, I, I'm coming to the view that, that we've got to this point because of the lack of trust in the alternative. And um, lack, lack of trust is a major challenge for us, of course, in, uh, in financial services. And the final piece um, is still working its way through as well. And that, for me, is the role of baby boomers. Um, you know, baby boomers are infinitely more challenging, particularly the uh, more affluent ones in terms of helping them prioritise what's important, the differences between husbands and wives and the use of the family home, for instance. So um, that, that, that the start of the baby boomer challenge is working its way through. So, so that, those are the things that I'm seeing. And you put your finger on two of those trends that I mentioned. And the first is competition from people like Vanguard and a lot of Vanguard's rise over the last few years has been for precisely the reason that you mentioned, that they've, they've been selling ETFs on index funds, and suddenly the world wants ETFs on index funds. You mentioned the breakdown in trust. I think it's pretty plain where that comes from. Active management has never been able to prove that it adds value. It's always charged a lot for the privilege. I think people have finally woken up to it. Well, that seems to be the way. that The, the data it, it isn't um, all, all in the favour of, uh, of people running. Um, as I said, um, only 20% of investment uh, 
management is passive and the growth is not expected to go much beyond 30 in the next three or four years. So while there's huge volumes comparably um, during the year went to passive, um, there's still a lot of people hanging around inactive and um, we could expect perhaps some sort of recovery. Um, People are working very hard to get an active story that works. And at the same time, we're seeing Vanguard starting to talk about adding active products in, which leads me to, to ponder, is active changing? Does active today look different to what it looked 10 years ago? Well, I, I think people like Vanguard would argue that active might be okay as long as it's at a passive price, and that's certainly what they're doing. But if we look at the pattern that we see in the three largest managers, um, Vanguard, BlackRock and Fidelity, I think what we're seeing... A, a, a considerable consistency. They're both, or sorry, all three uh, are, are taking a global perspective. All three have a mixture of active and passive. Those that have been passive are moving to active. Those that are active are moving to passive or, or acquiring along the way. And all three are looking at technology and Fidelity and BlackRock doing that with their ears pinned back, um, Vanguard not quite so at this stage, um, and the use of technology but essentially to, to make it easier to do business with them and to be able to build relationships. Um, that Vanguard is, is perhaps the boldest at this stage because it's uh, of the strength of, it, of its brand and the volumes that are going towards, uh, at least in the US, it's a, its own advice platform, which is at 30 basis points. So Vanguard, I think you quite rightly um, identified as the uh, as the progenitor of um, of major change, lower price and quality advice. Um, what we're seeing is the people that answer the phone into at Vanguard are are going to be people with CFP designations, as they will be in in, in other managers such as Schwab in the US. Um, so a professionalisation of, um, of advice is working its way through the enterprise solution there as well. So um, we see lots of change out of those three with, um, with literally this year being, being when they've all appeared above the surface and we can see something of the, uh, of the depth that sits behind them. They are veritable icebergs. Now, speaking of technological solutions, you mentioned that this year has been the year of disappointment for robos. Explain what you mean, because um, they're still out there and going strong. So why was this year so bad for them? We expected um, there would be a take-up in um, self-directed robos, people going of their own accord. But it looks like the, uh, the first flush in, uh, in the US has slowed down um, Betterment and wealth front of uh, as many of our listeners will will have picked up have pivoted to adding advice to their process. Um, individuals just doing it without feeling the need for support um, has been the uh, the surprise. The cost of client acquisition being probably the major issue. You were pointing your finger at that a few years ago and saying that. Any robo that wasn't connected to a financial institution was going to struggle because 
they still had all the same issues of acquiring clients that every financial advisor has always had. It doesn't go away just because you're a piece of software. And the cost of advertising yourself, screening clients, bringing clients on board, that cost is profound and has to be overcome. And we saw robo after robo that just couldn't get over the wall. And uh, that's been the history of... Uh of financial services. Um, I remember talking to my actuary of one of my uh, life insurance uh, periods saying, uh, Dennis, you know, we, we see these new innovative ways of, uh, of acquiring clients. What does it mean? And he smiled at me and said, well, not a huge amount. Uh, what, what tends to happen is very rapidly the cost of client acquisition in all cases comes to the same number. It's as if it's a, a law of nature. You can never get a competitive advantage in attracting clients for very long. There ain't nothing out there that comes for nothing. Now, you mentioned that it's been a bit of an interesting year for professional standards, not quite because of activity from the regulators themselves, but we've both watched with interest how the United States is sort of starting to drift towards a de facto fiduciary standard because of that debate that came out during the Department of Labor work. Um, One takes the view that a sensible marketing plan has the client front and centre of uh, of what you do. So the fiduciary standard is essentially saying uh, that uh, the client's needs need to be taken account of. Now, in every other industry, those that take into account clients' needs, whether it's their need for style or their need for low cost or convenience, have done well. There's no reason to suggest the same logic won't prevail in financial services, though a little more tardily, perhaps. So um, it's not the stick of fiduciary that's driving the process. It's the carrot of an appropriate reward because clients appreciate the outcome. And of course, the whole market won't go fiduciary. There's always going to be that part of the market that will be anything but that because that's what people want. Um, we see that in, in, in several countries, and I'm, I've mentioned this before. Um, India does this very neatly. It says you've got a choice. We're not forcing you into fiduciary. We're simply saying you can be a salesman and receive a commission or you can be a fiduciary and charge a fee. Here are the rules. You decide. Um now, in other uh, jurisdictions, the uh, the option to do that hasn't been uh, as uh, as clear, and the regulator is pushing. But the politics is immense. Um, remember that this is the golden casket. Uh, you have a client at age forty um, in their pension fund, and you're able to provide provide a. Um, accumulation for another 20 years and decumulation for another 25. There's a 45-year present value of that client um, with the view that there'll be some cross-selling, some upselling, and their account value may be double or triple by the time they, they're in their mid-60s. So there's a big game in town to, to get this stuff right. And uh, we've seen... Um, the, the, the shift, baby boomers always changed the world and they're now moving into decumulation. In Europe, where things often move very, very slowly, Mifid 2 is actually introducing some changes to the rules in early 2018 and it's claimed that they strengthen investor protections. Will they really do that? Well, they will certainly change things for investors. Um, what we're seeing in Mifid 2 is a change of emphasis from blaming the advisor for all um, 
all the errors and failures of advice to saying the manufacturer has to take on some responsibility. At its simplest, the, the manufacturer has to design um, their product, their service, their portfolio to meet the needs of a particular audience and to assure themselves under the risk of, uh, of punishment that the product has arrived in the hands of those people that it's been designed for. Um, it's, as one would expect, taken 10 years of negotiation and navigation between the industry and the regulators to get to where it is. So it's, it's clumsy and unclear. There's a lot of ambiguity. But essentially, um, we will have a manufacturing and distribution regulation, quite unlike found in any other country. Should it improve things, it'll be um, interesting to see. Transparency doesn't do any harm. I guess it's the fundamental argument. Uh, if I was to juxtapose two models that we that we now see very clearly between paternalism, we know what's best and we will regulate for it, and collaboration and informed consent, where you want the advisors and their clients to be able to make decisions based on clear disclosure. I would be pushing for the latter um, rather than the former. And European legislation helps get greater clarification of, of costs and remove conflicts. That's got to go a long way. There's obviously issues around disclosure of volatility that uh, are pretty stupid um, and don't make a great deal of sense, but I'm sure we'll be able to work around those over the longer term. So. Um, on the final weight of it, I would argue it's the transparency that will win because that will lead to informed consent and informed consent is an infinitely better way towards trust rather than the alternative, which is uh, behavioural modification by cheating. Interestingly, though, we have a live case study of transparency because the regulatory system in Australia is built around if something is disclosed, it is no longer a problem. So we have a, a thing here called a product disclosure statement, a PDS, and you can put forward the most outrageous financial product as long as you complete one of these 120-page documents that no one ever reads. So disclosure on its own isn't enough. There has to be something else put into the mix to make the disclosure meaningful to get you from here's a disclosure of something that you don't necessarily understand or comprehend to, to being able to give that informed consent that you speak of. Oh, that's true, isn't it? And so, so fiduciary isn't just a state of mind. It is getting a mind appropriately trained. Um, so we've got to invest in, uh, in better qualifications for those of us in the industry. It's not just advisors that have a fiduciary obligation. It's essentially all of us in the service and supply chain. And the best way we can move towards that is to have quality training and quality education. That's a big, big challenge. So the balance has got to be um, educating people, empowering them um, to, to, to take advantage of this. Transparency alone, as you quite rightly point out, isn't good enough. And what we've seen in Australia is uh, the reverse of any intention. Vertically integrated businesses that grew after the 2008 um, changes, the regulation that came out um, as a response, did nothing to do that, and it's only commercial reality that's forcing those enterprises to, 
to break up. They were unable to manage their own distribution, their own product manufacture. And as we're seeing in Australia, the number of financial institutions are withdrawing from their wealth management positions um, and just making use of selling credit cards and home loans to make their profits. Now, to our fourth trend, Paul, we come to an area that you know very well, financial risk tolerance. There's some, some interesting developments in how you approach measuring this. You're an old dog, but you're learning some new tricks. Well, we certainly don't suddenly have, suddenly we have lots and lots and lots of competitors. Um, for such a long period of time, we seem to be a, a alone in the forest saying um, there is a light and this is how you navigate your way out. Um, You understand risk tolerance, you understand needs, you understand capacity, and you help people understand how to prioritise what's important to them of those three major factors in constructing a a portfolio. Um, I guess what we've seen in the last year is is not only um, a number of competitors, but competitors coming at this from um, distinctly different ways. And I, I think I could describe them as two. One is using gamble questions, gamble theory, which is essentially an argument that we value um, gains and losses differently. And the second comes from big data. Big data basically saying that we can see in people's past behaviour indications of both major personality issues and the likelihood of them replicating that behaviour in the future. So suddenly we have a number of uh, competitors using both of those and I would guess merging the functionality that appears in both of those because, of course, the big data trends is big data. It's not personal, whereas the gamble question, it is could be argued, is a personal view of, uh, of the trade-offs between gains and losses. Now, these gambler's questions are a big issue for you. Explain why. Essentially, gamble questions have nothing to do with risk tolerance. They're just preferences between gains and losses on a theoretical construct of a portfolio in six months' time. They, there's nothing I can see in the literature and nothing that appeals to common sense to say this represents risk tolerance. So on level one... It's not risk tolerance, it's just the result of asking some gamble questions. And two is an understanding of uh, of our capacities and constraints. Most of us aren't particularly numerate and calculations are not our preferred way of doing things. Um, We are given a chance to calculate or guess a number um, our natural instincts are to, to guess because calculation hurts. And as we get older, that becomes more and more difficult. So the net result of that is the likelihood of um, retesting, giving a similar response, um, diminishes. So retesting will give you a different answer and each advisor will then be left with a challenge. This client's purported risk tolerance has changed what should I do with that? Should I amend the portfolio or leave on record that uh, the uh, risk tolerance has changed? And that's got to be a great challenge. If you move the portfolio, why? Risk tolerance has changed? 
um, imagine doing that every six months for a 15 or 20 year period and seeing the consequence for uh, for performance or leaving it there why do it in the first place so it's a it's an ugly cul-de-sac to use gamble questions now, a key reason for measuring risk tolerance is to help us to understand someone's pain point, where the market volatility might cause them to exit their investment, and that's tread number five. That correction has to be coming because it always comes, but do you think people are ready for it? Well, they're as ready as, as this conversation. We've been talking about it for a long while. Um, the, the, the issue around uh, market corrections and market booms are are essentially, it's emotional, it's not rational. Um, as, as we've been looking at over the last period of time, you cannot pick when the market will top out. It will be a series of, of reactions to the news of the day and enough people will say, I've had enough. Um, and there will be a tipping point and the correction will occur. In some cases, there's a quick recovery like 87. And, it, and in other cases, as we saw in 2008 and 2000 in certain countries, it'll take a long time because there'll be a lot of bruising along the way. Um, who will, who's likely to tip? Um, we would argue that it's an individual whose risk tolerance is, uh, has reflected a lack of confidence in uh, in their decision making are more likely to than people who have a higher risk tolerance and have a higher confidence in their own ability. Um, but that's a generalisation. We have to manage people as they are, not as we would want them to be. And so when you've assessed an individual's risk tolerance as high or low, um, you need to stay on top of that and make sure that... Uh, um, you're not allowing a generalisation from that to, to govern behaviour. If they've got a low risk tolerance, you need to be talking with them and making sure that they're not getting uh, um, as negative an experience as the market would like to give them. So a prime example would be you don't encourage them to look at their equity portfolio on a daily basis. You put them in funds which... Uh, which have um, a broad level of diversification and you encourage them to, to look at their portfolio in light of their goals rather than short-term outcomes. So understanding risk tolerance and how you manage them um, is a critical way of working our way through. Have we done a good job in this? In some cases we certainly have, but in several others I think we will. We will revisit what happened in the previous corrections. Lots of people will be unhappy. Suitability will be blamed, lots of court cases, regulation change, and we'll all go, what have we done to deserve this? Now, Paul, for you, 2017 was a very big year with Finometric emerging with Plan Plus. Just recap for me, what drove that merger and what can you do now that you couldn't do back then? Well, we just measured risk tolerance. We clearly needed to be able to integrate with somebody that could help our clients understand risk required and, and risk capacity. And uh, we had done a number of integrations with organisations around the world. Um, all of them were, uh, were local, but they were firms that just worked in their own country, whereas Plan Plus 
um, had a global footprint. So they were a natural partner. Um, they have the capacity to do multi-jurisdictional planning, um, could swap tax systems and languages quite quickly. So, so the benefit is that we'll be able to give uh, um, our clients um, a, uh, a more practical way of, of, of illustrating the trade-offs and we build our own technical competency. That means we, the advisory firms we work with and the integrations we have will we'll see the benefit of our greater understanding of risk tolerance. So it made sense in lots and lots of ways. We get a, a better product with, with more experience and we're able to promote uh, good advice with, with greater enthusiasm around the world. Paul, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for your commentary throughout this year. It's been a pleasure, Craig. And folks, that brings us to the end of Financial Planning Conversations for 2017. So thank you all for being with us throughout the year too. And thanks to our sponsor, Plan Plus, who make this podcast possible. I'm Craig Saunders. Bye for now. Bye for now.